Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. I Thanks for being here. What a beautiful day. What a beautiful week. Just a little hot, right? Just a little hot. So, well, this morning, um, we're going to take a break away from the study in Genesis and talk about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John 4. But as I was preparing for this morning, I remembered that there is similar language both in Genesis 1 and then in John 1. And so I kind of want to start with this. So in Genesis 1, 1 to 5, we read in the beginning, God began God began to create the heavens and the earth. And the earth was complete chaos, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the water. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So in the beginning, God created light, and he separated the light from the darkness, and that was good. But now fast forward to John, where he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. The life was the the light of all people. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. When Christ, the light of the world, came, he shone in the darkness, bringing light to dark places. So as we read in the Gospels of this new creation that was ushered in when God became flesh, and he dwelt among us, we see his light breaking in to places and people that are alienated by darkness. Light came into darkness through Christ to reconcile us living in darkness to God. And then as his light bearers, his image bearers, as we've been talking about, we are invited to not separate ourselves from darkness, but to carry his light to the alienated and marginalized and invite them to be reconciled to God. Our call is not to separate light from darkness, but to carry the light of Christ and his character into our context. So how do we do that? Well, we can catch a glimpse of this by reading the gospel stories of how Jesus did this. And so this morning, we're going to specifically talk about the woman at the well and Jesus' encounter in John 4. The story of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well has been one of my favorite stories since I was in high school. So I've always enjoyed studying scripture in groups, and this was even in high school. I was kind of a nerd about it. And so when a college-age man invited a group of us high schoolers to be discipled and to dive into scripture, well, I jumped at the chance. I was, it was intense and emotional, and oh, I just loved it because I was in high school, remember? But one of the things he taught us was 10 steps to converting someone using the story of the woman at the well. They, all the 10 steps started with the letter C. Um, the ones that come to mind were our communication, confrontation, connection, those kind of things. But they were all C, 10 steps. And in retrospect, I have to say that it felt more like a strategy for selling a car 
than for inviting someone to Christ. And I actually cringe now when I think about it, because as I practice this strategy on many of my dear friends, I kind of developed in myself an idea that I was light and my friends were darkness. And it was that posture that almost cost me some of my dearest friends, because rather than inviting them to anything, I was actually driving them away. But over the years, I've returned to the passage with older eyes, hopefully more mature eyes, and come to appreciate different things in this story. In all the gospel stories, we can study them and find application, and we can also look for ourselves and find ourselves in the stories by asking the question, who do we most resonate with in this story, in this season of life? As God does his transforming work in our lives, no doubt our encounters with Christ through the stories of the Gospels will take on new meanings and different meanings for us. And as we process our own life experiences, as we listen to others around us with curiosity and empathy, and as we listen for God even in the silences of our aloneness, he will show us new things that will shift us maybe our understanding, our attitudes, our behavior, sometimes in big ways and sometimes in small ways, but always in ways that in the end help us to look more like Christ. So the story of the woman who comes to the well at noon is the story of someone who has been separated from the light and left in the dark by the religious and cultural customs of the day. Because she is relegated to the dark, she has to be at the well in the heat of the day, at high noon. And we all know what that feels like after the last few days. It's safe at that time for her as she is free from the eyes of her judging neighbors who know her history and use it as a way to separate her dark from light in their eyes. And this story is also a story of Jesus entering into life and daily routine of a woman who is separated from the light of her community and then inviting her to see God herself and others in the true light of love, compassion, and mercy. What I want us to look at this morning is the postures that Jesus takes with her as one who is not separating light from darkness, but rather bringing light into the darkness. Postures that we can learn as we engage with the world and those in our lives. So by posture, I mean an attitude or approach or a frame of mind. It addresses not what am I going to say, but how am I going to be in this conversation? So first of all, let's look at how Jesus extends a posture of vulnerability. So let's follow the passage in John 4, and I'll read it for us. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then in parentheses, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized. John always has to give us a little bit more information. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And then again, a little more information. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. As we've talked about before, um, 
Context is important here, and it helps us open up the richness of this story. It's significant that this person is a woman. She's marginalized in a culturally and religiously male-centered society. And she's also Samaritan. And with that, she's marginalized within the Jerusalem-centric Judaism. John even says in verse 9, he clarifies this, and he says, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. So here we are in the story, a Samaritan woman speaking to a non-Samaritan Jewish man. You could say culturally and religiously at that time, this is a perfect example of darkness and light separated. But Jesus doesn't hold to the religious and cultural norms established in the day. In fact, he shines light into the darkness with a surprising posture of vulnerability by asking her for a drink. At that moment, he put himself beneath her by acknowledging that he needed water and she was the one that could provide it. He's not demanding it, but he's asking. And he's risking the possibility that she could say no. The woman is accustomed to the separation, and so she's a bit disarmed by Jesus' request. His vulnerability allowed the conversation to open up. Jesus, by shining a light of humanity, invites a dialogue with her. There's a New Testament theologian, um, Dr. Dale Bruner, and um, I like to say that I used to study with him when I was at Fuller. He was the resident theologian, and so um, we would actually be in the same room in the library studying, but not necessarily together. But in my mind, we, we studied together. But he writes in his commentary talking about Jesus in this passage. He says, Jesus is a gentleman, wonderfully human and humane. And so it's in this context with this woman that he's willing to share a common humanity with her. I experienced this in my own um, neighborhood as we were raising our kids in Lake Forest Park. We had neighbors who were pretty much all in the same phase of life. Lots of kids, having kids, trying to figure it all out. We saw each other at the bus stop. We saw each other in the cul-de-sac. We interacted with each other's kids and kept an eye on each other. We celebrated Fourth of July and New Year's Eve together. Um, We may have set off a few uh, fireworks illegally, but that's another story. But we celebrated all this in the neighborhood. And what that did was it just built this strong sense of community. We also shared heart together. In the early 2000s, as I've talked about before, the doctors found a benign tumor in my cervical spine, and we walked together as neighbors through the unknown, waiting to hear that it was not malignant. About the same time, my neighbor found out she had breast cancer, and she continues to fight it to that, this day. And so we continue to share the common experience of humanity that comes. Now, I knew this specific neighbor's story related to the church, and it was stories, it was a story that had left deep wounds for her. And I knew that it wasn't mine to heal those wounds or to defend God or to defend the church. It was mine to share the common experiences that we had, raising and loving our children, addressing difficult medical diagnoses, losing loved ones, and grieving together. 
So one morning in 2007, I was um, in September, I was getting ready to visit a dear friend in Pasadena who had also been diagnosed with cancer, and he was getting to the end of his life. I was flying out that day to see him for the last time, but as I put my things together, I got a call from his wife in tears saying that he had just died just a few minutes before. It was a devastating call, and of course, I was heartbroken for his wife who'd lost her spouse, but for me too, as I would never see my dear friend Scott again. And at that moment, I needed a friend who could understand and comfort me and hold me close. And so I went next door to my neighbor, and, and I remember her coming to the door, and through my tears, I just said, Scott just died. And she gave me the comfort, the hugs I needed in that moment of deep hurt and vulnerability. We have those times when our common human experience binds us together, regardless of our faith convictions. When we need each other, sometimes the best light we can shine into the world, into our neighborhoods, is the light of vulnerability that unites us with the reality that we are all human. Jesus shared with the woman at the well the common experience of being human and needing one another. So what does it look like for us to be vulnerable with those outside our circle of Christian friends? Is there something that we can let go of that in doing so might open up a door into a place of shared humanity where we show others not just that they need Jesus, but why we need Jesus? our light as well. The second posture that Jesus demonstrated was one of dialogue. Jesus' willingness to be vulnerable sparked an unlikely conversation, starting with the barriers that he overstepped, and why was he willing to do that? She even said to him, why is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Apparently, in her world, a man would rather die of thirst than ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. But rather than addressing the ills of society where there is so much separation, Jesus stirs her curiosity by moving the conversation from the need for physical water to eternal water, to living water, from the water that keeps her coming to the well in the heat of the day to water that causes one to never be thirsty again. The conversation could have been one where Jesus justified his actions or defended the separation of male and female or Jew and Samaritan, but instead he moved out to a place that transcended the divisive conversations of the day. If you only knew, he said, the free gift of God and who it is who is talking to you, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Jesus shone his light into the darkness of separation in which this woman lived, and he invited her to see him for who he really was and the gift he had to offer as far beyond anything else her place in life could offer. She knew what it meant to be thirsty. She knew what it meant to make the trip out to the well daily. She knew what it meant to live in dependence on this, this chore she knew what it was like to look for satisfaction in things or relationships that didn't satisfy for long. 
And so as she, she knows this and she begins, she challenges Jesus for what he's saying. She wonders out loud if he thinks that somehow he's greater than the ancestors that the Samaritans and even the Jews held in honor. She's almost insulting Jesus for his brash claim to offer better water than what her forefathers provided. This lack of understanding about what Jesus is talking about is similar to the lack of understanding that Nicodemus demonstrated just in the chapter before this, in chapter 3 of John, where Jesus tells him that he must be born again. And he asks, how can a man go back into his mother's womb and be reborn? Jesus is inviting both of these people to accept this new gift that is beyond comprehension to the most learned and perhaps to the least learned. It is a gift to each, mysteriously offered and mysteriously understood. Jesus engaged the woman with a metaphor that she could understand that would speak both to her desire to break the routines that she was tied to and the unmet desires of her heart. But it also pulled her into the mysterious invitation of water that never ran dry, the Spirit of God himself. And then Jesus goes on in this invitation to say that not only could she be filled with living water, but that fountains of living water could flow out of her. This must have seemed otherworldly to this woman, beyond understanding. But it was also the fulfillment of her deepest desires, physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. And so not even sure what she was asking for, She said, give me this water, sir, so I won't be thirsty again, and so I don't have to keep coming to the well. When we come to Jesus sometimes, regardless of where we are on our Christian journey, we aren't even sure what we are asking of him. But we know that there's something deeper, something more satisfying that he might be offering that we haven't found And so it's a tentative and a vulnerable place where we become the asker, like Jesus did at the beginning of this story in asking for a drink of water, and then here with the Samaritan woman asking for this living water. And so how do we, how do you cultivate conversation with Jesus that ignites your curiosity and invites you into deeper, uncharted territory? What are you asking of God these days on your journey of transformation? And then this leads us into the next posture of Jesus, the posture of seeing and loving the whole person. Jesus saw a woman socially located in a town, in a culture, and a history, and desired to bring all she was to the surface so that all of her excuse me, all of her could be restored by this gift of living water. It was a hard request, no doubt. Go and get your husband and return, he said. Now I want to take a minute to ponder this. How do you hear Jesus saying this to her? What's the tone of his voice, do you think? What is he trying to accomplish in this request? I would suggest that his tone is gentle, and he is inviting her to welcome the light of the gift of God, the living water, into all areas of her place, 
into her ethnicity, her gender, her lot in life, and into the brokenness that her life represents as she sought to survive in the culture that she inhabited. Again, going back to Dr. Bruner, he sheds light on this passage as he writes, It is not necessary, and it can even be insensitive, to paint the woman's moral life with lurid colors. It is as possible that she was as much or more the victim of thoughtless men's divorces or of tragic men's deaths as that she was an immoral person herself. We simply do not know. But we can fairly say that in the eyes of her culturally conditioned readers, she will seem to be second class, not only in gender and nationality, but also in morality. So as Dr. Bruner says, we really don't know her moral condition. But what we can see here is that Jesus wants to grant her request to have living water fill all the corners of her life even the dark corners, so that her story of redemption can be used as a conduit of the living waters of God's spirit and love and mercy into others' lives. Jesus desires to bring shalom, wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, and flourishing. Jesus desires shalom not just between her and God, but in her relationships with herself, others, and her community. The living water, the light that we are offered from God over and over in our lives, impacts all of us who we are, individually, in community, and in the world. Jesus is gentle, but his desires for each of us is that we experience wholeness, completeness, soundness, well-being, and flourishing in all areas of our lives. Part of our journey, just like the woman, is hearing his invitation to greater shalom and risking saying yes to each invitation, even when we don't know what that means. And Jesus continues with his posture toward her, a posture of love and mercy and patience. Even when she changes the subject to deflect the light from filling the darkness of her life, He joins her as she asks her next question, a theological one around worship. And don't we often use questions of theology to diffuse the discomfort that we feel when we begin to feel vulnerable or exposed in comfortable ways in a conversation? But she asks, who is right, the Samaritans or the Jews? Where is the correct place to worship? Jesus is patient with her. He doesn't minimize the discomfort she feels, the way she's processing the conversation and the need to move in and out of the uncomfortable and confusing topics. But as she asks about worship, Jesus introduces the name of the one who both the Jews and the Samaritans are worshiping. She asked about the location of worship. Jesus introduced who it was that they were worshiping which is the better question. I heard recently a podcast where the interviewee was talking about a concept that he had picked up from the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. The concept was Mu, M-U. And from what I understand, it's the retracting of a simple question, like a yes-no, for a deeper, more significant question. 
For example, maybe around spiritual practices, we can ask the question, have I read, have I read my Bible today? Have I prayed today? Have I talked to my friend and been encouraged by her? That's, that's a yes or no question. But the moo question in this would be, how is God revealing himself to me through these practices and transforming me? And is there something more I desire from my encounter with him? Moo. It's the difference between knowing someone on the surface and beginning to understand them in a deeper way. The woman at the well asked a pretty simple question. Where's the right place to worship? The mountain or Jerusalem? But Jesus answered a different and significantly more important question. Who do we worship? His answer included an invitation to believe him because his words were trusty, were trustworthy. His answer leveled the playing field for Jews and Samaritans as they were all invited to worship the Father and engage in worship through the Holy Spirit and the truth that Jesus embodied, regardless of location. This was the question beyond the question. This was the question that was greater than any social or religious construct that separated people between dark and light. This was the question that shone the light of God into a world trapped in darkness. The woman's response to this was to profess faith in the coming Messiah and her confidence that all things would be made clear at that moment. Perhaps she was still seeing Jesus as that vulnerable man who needed a drink of water. Perhaps she still saw him as a teacher who was talking about living water that would satiate thirst and overflow to others. Or perhaps she still saw Jesus as the prophet who knew things about her that she wished he didn't. But in the final words to her, Jesus reveals who he was, who he is. I who speak to you am he. I am the one you are waiting for. I am the one who will shine the light of love and mercy and grace into your life, who will fill you with living water so that you overflow to others, who will bring about shalom in your life, relationships, your community, and who will level the ground in the sight of God among his people. Because she saw Jesus for who he was, she could see clearly who she was. No longer needing to hide from her townspeople, she had good news to share, that she had met the Messiah, the one who knew her and invited her to himself, and the one that they had all been looking for. So as I close, there's another storyline in this passage, and that is that of the disciples. When they saw Jesus talking to the woman from Samaria in the middle of the day, they didn't see light entering darkness, but rather wondered why light didn't separate itself from darkness. Didn't he know? Does the teacher need to be taught about the social and cultural propriety? Those were the questions that they had, but they didn't ask. They urged him to eat, and Jesus took that opportunity to expand on another common human need, that of eating. He invited the disciples to move past the simple question of why is he talking to a Samaritan woman and lift up their eyes and see what God was doing, even in Samaria, even in and through a woman. 
and to find satisfaction and nourishment in participating in God's work. And that invitation is for us as well. Look around, he says. Many are ready to hear the good news and believe. And it doesn't happen by separating the light from the darkness. It happens by Christ's followers entering into the places that seem dark to us and entering in with a posture of vulnerability, of dialogue, and of caring for the whole person. This process of bringing light into dark places doesn't happen in one conversation often. It takes time. But God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God desires that living water flow into us and through us to those around us, like they did for the Samaritan woman. And this happens when we develop eyes to see the light of life infusing the darkness in a way that the darkness cannot overcome. So may we go into this next week acknowledging our daily need for the living spirit, the living water, and seeking ways to shine the light of love, mercy, and shalom into our places of influence so that God's good news might be seen and experienced by those who need it. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that regardless of where we are, how we are situated in our life, in our community, you invite us to be filled with living water, living water that overflows into relationships with others. Lord, we need you, and people need to hear that. And so help us, even as we share with others, to remember that it's the living water that we rely on, that we have to share with them as well. Lord, may we go into our neighborhoods, into our worlds this next week, as light infusing the dark places. And we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.